You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull one out of the seat back in front of you. Uh, if you are online, you can click the link to the version tab uh, that is uh, underneath the U- YouTube uh, there as well. And uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, for your own, you can keep the one that is in the seat back in front of you, and we'll just replace it next week. Uh, and so uh, we want you to have your own copy of God's Word, and you, we want you to be able to see that in front of you. Uh, bring your, bring the, your Bible every single week. Open it up. Check me on things. It's not me who has the authority. It's God, right? All right. You can open your Bibles to Acts 16. And before I was a, a preaching pastor, I, most of you probably know that I was the worship director here at Oak Hill. And also before that, I was uh, in charge of, of all campus worship at Lancaster Bible College. And, and so that, uh, so I wanted to um, uh, help my worship teams grow in their ability to lead worship. And one of the things that I would do is I would do this little exercise uh, where I, I would get them to play more than just chords on a page or words on a page. And so one of the things that I would do is encourage the team to play without music. My worship teams love me for that. You remember that, some of you, right? And sometimes, if I could get them comfortable enough, as long as they didn't have any, like, PTSD or something like that, I would turn the lights out on them and make them play in the dark uh, so that they couldn't see their music in front of them. And, uh, and we'd play through the song, and it really didn't matter if there were mistakes made. Uh, what mattered was that they learned to feel the music, they, they learned to connect to the chord progressions and to the lyrics, and, and uh, they could feel that all at a deeper level, and it just became a part of who they were when they weren't attached to that music anymore. You see, it's one thing to, to read the notes off of a page or sing the words off of a page or off of, even off of the screen on a Sunday morning. It's another thing to know that song so much that you can sing it in the dark. And uh, I thought about this little exercise when I read this quote by, by Charles Spurgeon this week. It's up on the screen for you as well. Spurgeon says, anyone can sing in the day. When the cup is full, one draws inspiration from it. When the wealth rolls in abundance around them, anyone can sing to the praise of God who gives an abundant harvest. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is the one who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by, who sings from their heart, not from the book that they can see, because they have no means of reading except from that inward book of their living spirit where notes of gratitude pour out in songs of praise. And I hope you can tell Spurgeon is now speaking figuratively here. By day, of course, he means the times in life when a disciple has things that are going well. Growth is evident. The fruit is there. And, of course, by night, then, he means times of intense trial or opposition or suffering or even depression or despair. Something which uh, Spurgeon himself was very deeply familiar with. He suffered with large bouts of depression himself. 
And he's recognizing that every single disciple will have times in their lives when the sun is shining brightly. And they're going to have times in their lives when the deep dark of night sets in. And it's in those times of darkness that the the true song of our soul is expressed. We need to cultivate a heart that's ready to pray even when we cannot see the notes on a page. Even when we cannot understand what God is doing, we need to cultivate a heart that sings and prays from the inward book of our living spirit. Really, that's a big part of the goal of why we would do a series like this called The Way of Prayer. Uh, We're learning how to support one another by praying together on the paths of discipleship. And because We follow a Savior who suffered. The path of discipleship is going to lead us through some hard times. Jesus wasn't afraid of going through some hard times. Aren't you glad? And so you can think of this sermon series as an opportunity to learn the melodies of prayer and praise so that they're written on our hearts even when the dark night of the soul sets in. We're learning to make prayer our first response together. We are learning to pray the type of worship-based prayer that responds through the Holy Spirit indwelling us to the unchanging truth of God's Word. We are learning to engage our hearts in expectant prayer every time we are gathered. We need to learn it when the lights are on so that when the things go dark, prayer becomes a familiar song to our hearts. That's what we're going to see in the life of the Apostle Paul and his teammate Silas today. We're going to see how praying together with others during the day helped them keep worshiping God through prayer and song in the nights. We're going to see that praying together was Paul and Silas' natural first response to extreme trial because it was already their first response before the trial came. And so here's our big idea for today. Here's what we want for every single person in this room today. Fill your heart with worshipful prayer in the day so you can continue in worshipful prayer through the night. Fill your heart with worshipful prayer in the day so you can continue in worshipful prayer through the night. We're in Acts 16 today, and in this series we're examining many moments in the book of Acts where the early church is found praying. And so just to speed you up on the context, uh, hopefully throughout the week you're working your way through the reading plan that we give out. It's out out in the lobby, and uh, it it, kind of fills in the gaps of the different parts of Acts that we're going through. But just to remind you, last week we left off in Acts chapter 14. And there's going to be a map up on the screen for you here. Acts 14 describes the end of Paul's first missionary journey. It's the the little blue line that you see, the smaller blue circle that you see on that map. And um, Paul had traveled through Cyprus and Pamphylia and part of Galatia, uh, preaching the gospel and planting churches on his first missionary journey. And so from here, uh, Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch and and they reported all that God had done. 
And there was a great celebration, and they spent some time there uh, leading that church, and they even led that church through some significant disputes that are important for us even today. And from there, uh, they then decided that they would go back out on another missionary journey. You just can't keep these guys down, right? They, they went back out first to encourage existing churches. They didn't want to leave them high and dry. And then they wanted to maybe plant some new ones. But the problem was Paul and Barnabas had a, a bit of a disagreement. We're not going to see Barnabas's name in today's story. And that's because they parted ways. That happens sometimes, right, between Christians. Sometimes God has a, a purpose in, in Christians going different ways. And Paul found a new teammate in Silas. Uh, in, in some other New Testament books, his name is Salvanus. There's two different names that, that, he went, that he referred to by. And they went and they visited the churches that were already planted. And then they had an intense desire to take the gospel into some new territory. They wanted to go into Asia and, and maybe Bithynia, but they, they, couldn't, they couldn't go through those places. And the Spirit kept saying no. And it's one of the craziest passages. We don't know how the Spirit said no. He just made it clear that, that they shouldn't go there. He made it obvious enough that they, and they were in tune enough with him in prayer that they could understand. And so instead of going into those places, the Spirit clearly led them through a vision to go into Macedonia. And the first place that they went in Macedonia was Philippi. Philippi. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts 16 today. Now, in their, it was their custom upon entering a city to go into the synagogue and preach first to the Jews. However, most scholars believe that, that the Jewish population in the city of Philippi was so small that there was no synagogue. And so there must have been some sort of tradition when that was the case that the, 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 the Jews that were there would meet down by the riverside for prayer in the word. Because that's where Paul and Silas assume that they're going to find some Jews praying. And they do. They make first contact with a group of Jewish women who are praying down by the river. Now, I don't want you to miss this. The gospel first came to those who were, in varying degrees, seeking the God of the Bible in prayer. They hadn't heard about Jesus yet, but they did have what we refer to now as the Old Testament in our Bibles. They had read the law that, that, that the New Testament says Jesus fulfilled. They had read the prophets which pointed forward to Jesus and they knew that, that they should be praying to this God because He is worthy and they were needy. That's their posture. When Paul and Silas found them, they're humble, they're teachable. Their hands are raised in worship to God in prayer. And one particular woman named Lydia came to know Jesus that first day, along with all of her household, and they were all baptized. And, and this lady must have been uh, some strong woman because she insisted, and Luke says they pre prevailed upon Paul and his team to stay there with them. They must have been like, no, 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 you don't have to, you don't have to house it. She's like, no, you're, you're coming to my house. You know that lady, right? And, uh, and so their, her house became home base this new work in Philippi. But it's interesting, if you look at verse 16 in, in, in Acts chapter 16, it also seems that the river continued to be a meeting place for this budding church plant. 
In verse 16, we find Paul and his team, and probably these new believers along with them, heading back to the place of prayer. Going to the place of prayer seems to be a habit for this church. Part of their church culture right from the start was fervent prayer. And it was on the way to that place of prayer that they met some intense opposition. Uh, first, a demon-possessed slave girl started following them, and, and taunting, the demon started taunting Paul. And, 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 and so Paul kind of gets annoyed. I think that's funny. And he casts the demon out of her. Now, that's great for the girl, but here's the problem. The demon helped her tell the future by the power of Satan. And that power brought her owners money. And so when she loses the demon, they lose their money, and that makes them angry. And when they get angry, they physically drag Paul into the center of the city, into the marketplace, before the Roman magistrates, and accuse them. And the Roman magistrates, apparently not asking enough questions, had them beaten with rods and thrown in jail. It's rare that going to a prayer meeting is quite that costly. It might cost us a football game, but it doesn't usually cost us jail time. Now they find themselves beaten and bloodied and shackled to a prison wall alongside thieves and murderers. And that's where we pick up in verse 25, which is where we're going to start our reading today. Look down in your Bibles at verse 25. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. We're going to stop there. So they were on their way to a prayer meeting. And they get totally sidetracked. And they end up in jail. And it's midnight. And instead of saying, I guess God must not want to hear from us, we should just wallow in our sorrow and complain and give up. Instead of saying that, they just resume their prayer meeting. Fill your heart with worshipful prayer in the day so you can continue in worshipful prayer through the night. You see where that's coming from? Three reasons why worshipful prayer is so important when the night sets in. The first is this. Worshipful prayer realizes the presence of God in the night. Worshipful prayer realizes the presence of God in the night. Notice the words about midnight. Luke is stating a fact, but he wouldn't have to state that fact. He's painting a picture of the present reality. This is a pretty dark place. Their muscles ached from being drugged into the city. Their backs were sore and bloodied and bruised and beaten because they had been lashed with rods. They had planned a, a great atmosphere for their prayer meeting, a beautiful riverside where eager hearts could join together and, and, and see God and worship God and, and the creation that he has made. And now they've been relocated to a moldy prison cell. This is a legitimately challenging situation. Just like measure up like the challenging situations that you've been through. This kind of ranks up there, right? 
And I don't think any of us would blame them if they just didn't feel like praying much that night. I don't think any of us would think less of them if they were feeling a little defeated or depressed. In fact, I wonder how many of us would think that God had abandoned us in that moment. But here in the middle of the night, their tune doesn't change. They were praying and singing hymns to God. I want you to notice three more things about verse 25. First, I want you to notice that both Paul and Silas were engaged in prayer and singing together. They, they, were, they were together in this. Even here in a Roman prison, corporate prayer was their priority. They, they weren't just praying in their heads or singing in their hearts for fear that someone might hear them, which could cause a lot more problems than just uh, maybe losing face or, or feeling embarrassed. They were lifting their voices together to God. And we know that they were doing this out loud because other people were listening in. They were watching. They were, through their prayers, encouraging one another. When we pray together, we feed off one another's faith in God as it's poured out in worshipful prayer and song. And the exact activity that they were planning to do on the banks outside of the river, outside of Philippi, they are now doing in the prison cell. Nothing could stop them. Secondly, they are praying and singing hymns to God. So the priority of their praying is not, God, get us out of here. Their, their priority is, God, you are worthy. This is worshipful prayer and singing. And the way that I know this is this. Luke uses a very specific word. Him. Him. A hymn is a particular type of song. And, and no, it is not a song that is written more than 50 years ago. And no, a hymn is not a song that is written in a book with notes written above it so that you can sing along like we sometimes think today. A hymn is a word that speaks to the content of the song. A hymn is a song particularly of praise. A hymn is a song about God sung to God. And so they're not singing laments about their situation. They're singing hymns to God. Laments are not wrong, by the way. Laments, the Bible is filled with laments, right? But here, in particular, they're occupying themselves with hymns of adoration. And the singing is tied to the praying with the word and. We can infer from that that the praying is worship-based as well. This was worshipful prayer and singing. This was prayer and singing that looked beyond the present circumstance, beyond the atmosphere, to the God who never changes. This was prayer and singing that magnified the Lord above the situation. You see it? The third thing I want you to notice is that Luke makes sure to include this, that the prisoners were listening. The prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas's response was remarkably different than the typical person who's sitting in a jail cell at midnight. This was a response that caught the attention of others. 
They were having a unique effect on the people around them. And let me just pause and and ask you at this point, when people see you in the midst of trial, can they see your faith in God expressed through worshipful prayer? Can others see that in the way that you respond to trial? Parents, let me just tell you, your kids are watching when the darkness is thick. Believers, your unbelieving neighbors and family members, extended family members and co-workers, they're, they're watching your response in the midst of trial. Do you trust the God you say you believe in? Church member, you, you're going to build the faith of others in your, our church when you express your faith in hard times through worshipful prayer and singing. It doesn't matter if you stand up and bawl your eyes out. That's better <laughs> in some ways. Because we can see that God is at work in your heart. And he's at work in the midst of whatever you're going through, whether we know what you're going through or not. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you for those of you who shared today and shared your prayers today. Worshipful prayer recognizes God's presence in the night. It's not that it's wrong to ask God for help or deliverance. I don't want you to hear me saying, like, don't make your requests known to God, because Peter told us to do that. It it would go against so much of what the Bible had to say if if we said we shouldn't request things in our praying. That's not what we're saying. Don't hear me saying that. As we've been saying over and over again, we must learn to seek God's face before we seek his hand. Because that's how we understand what God's hand wants to do. Worshipful prayer has a particular effect on our soul. It takes our eyes off of the situation and on to God. Let me illustrate this for you. When my younger kids have a a bad dream, and they're convinced that something might harm them. One of the main things that we try to do is we, we try to remind them that, that God is with them, even when mommy and daddy have to go back to bed because we really need sleep. And that God is bigger than anything that they could be afraid of. We, we pray with them and we help them remember the presence of a powerful God with them. And, and then when they say, but I'm too afraid to go back to sleep, here's what I tell them. You've memorized the attributes of God in that little thing that we sent out in the emails, the ABCs of knowing God. I want you to just work your way through that list until you fall asleep. Just keep remembering who God is until you fall asleep. Listen, that's what worshipful prayer does for our hearts. It reminds us that God is with us even when life feels like a bad dream, even when life is that bad dream. And he is bigger than anything that we could be afraid of. It gets our eyes off of our situation and gets our eyes onto God. Worshipful prayer recognizes the presence of God in the night. Now I find it interesting that that Paul and Silas were praying and singing. And David Parker and I have been talking about this a good bit lately, that that spontaneous singing can be an important part of our times of prayer. Whether it's in our gospel communities, or at a prayer night like we're having on, on March 7th, 
at our last elder meeting, we just sang spontaneously in praise to the Lord. It was such a beautiful thing. And listen, I know that some of you are freaking out. Like if somebody starts singing in my small GC, I'm not going anymore. But you got to get over yourself. You got to get over yourself in that moment. It doesn't matter how you sound. Just focus on the one who's worthy of your song. And we want you to know in times of prayer, singing is not off limits. It's just, it's not off limits. Like you, David and I have been talking. We want you to know you have permission. If you feel like you need permission, we want you to know you have it by the Lord, not us, to lead us in song that's in decent order with what we're doing. In the end, we, we need to start viewing our singing as praying. David alluded that to that as we started singing, worthy of your name. Like when we, when we sing, you are worthy, you are worthy of your name, we are praying to God. And not only that, we're praying to, in one voice in a way that we couldn't do otherwise. There, there's no more united prayer than when we're singing. Singing enables us to unite our hearts in prayer because we're all lifting our voice in total agreement with the same words at the same time. That's beautiful. And so as we sing on an average Sunday, when we're experiencing the daytime of the Christian life, if you will, we can learn to pray and sing together when the, light, when the night gets dark, when things get hard. Remember how much the songs of the church helped me through times when we lost our first baby to miscarriage. I specifically remember that next Sunday singing the greatness of our God and Keith Martin leading worship and just needing to know how near my God was. I remember times of, of our praying and singing that encouraged my soul through great times of anxiety and despair. And I remember one particular time we were singing the hymn, Be Still My Soul, which we need to get out, by the way. Okay? And my soul finally found stillness in that moment. Worshipful prayer realizes the presence of God in the night. And because worship acknowledges who God is and what God has done, worshipful prayer realizes the power of God in the night. That's our second point for today. Worshipful prayer realizes our, the power of God in the night. So look at verse 26. All that on one verse. We're going to go faster, I promise. And suddenly there was an earth, a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bond were, bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So one minute they're praying and singing, the prisoners are listening, and the next minute the jail is shaking and the chains are falling off. Worshipful prayer recognizes the power of God. That's power, don't you think? That's power. Now there are two distinct responses to this power that Luke describes. The jailer, and then Paul, Silas, and the other prisoners. 
So the jailer is terrified. He's sleeping. He's been sleeping instead of listening to Paul and Silas's concert of prayer and singing. He's not ready for this moment. And he's ready to kill himself because he thinks the prisoners escaped. And if the prisoners escaped, he's a dead man anyway because his boss is literally going to kill him. Your boss is not that bad, by the way. And even when Paul and Silas reassure him, he's still trembling. Paul and Silas, on the other hand, they're confident. And interestingly enough, so are the other prisoners. Paul reassures the jailer and tells them that all the prisoners are still there. They haven't escaped. And I find that so interesting. Because I'm not terribly surprised that Luke tells us that Paul and Silas didn't escape. I wouldn't blame them if they did. But the other prisoners, I would expect them to take advantage of the situation, wouldn't you? And yet I believe, because Luke was so concerned to tell us that the prisoners were listening to Paul and Silas, I believe that it was clear to the other prisoners that this was supernatural. That this event of the earthquake and the the chains falling off was the direct response to Paul and Silas' prayer and singing. And they knew that they shouldn't move without this guy's lead. Here's the point. Uh, Paul and Silas, and therefore the other prisoners, were ready to see the power of God for what it was because their hearts were prepared through worshipful prayer. We don't know exactly what words the prayer and, and hymns contained, but I am sure that they contained some big view of God. And so when God showed up in a dramatic way, they are not surprised. They are quick to realize that this is the power of God. They know the source of their salvation to some degree. God's rescue doesn't surprise them. Which is why they don't try to escape. They wait to see what God wants to do next. And I want to pause here and recognize that the powerful God who freed Paul and Silas is the same God we pray to today. Again, we've been saying this a lot. Acts is is mostly descriptive, right? It describes what God did for the early believers. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand the God we serve from the book of Acts. Luke is not describing stuff in order to tell us a good story and so that we can have some nostalgia about God from the good old days of the early church. Luke is describing this stuff in order to reveal God in all his power so that we would know God. God has not become less or more powerful since the book of Acts. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that? And and we can expect that he is going to work in powerful ways. We must expect that God is going to work in powerful ways as we pray. Maybe he's not going to work in the exact ways that we see him working here. But we will see him work in powerful ways. This is the God we worship today. And he wants us to know who he is so much that he inspired a guy named Luke to write it down and and, and he inspired it and preserved it throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, so that we could be convinced today of the things that we have been taught about him. 
And our God is the God who used songs of praise to shake prison walls and the chains of the people fell to the ground. Not metaphorically. He really did this. This isn't a fairy tale. He really did this. That's my God. That's my God. I want you to say that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, say, that's my God. Say it like you mean it. That's my God. That's my God. And just because he doesn't work exactly in the same way in every situation does not mean that he is not going to work in power. And we should pray with the full knowledge and expectancy that we serve and worship a powerful God. Amen? I love the song that we learned this morning. The, the, here are the lyrics again. You make mountains move. You make giants fall. You use psalms of praise to shake prison walls. And I will speak to my fear. I will preach to my doubt that you were faithful then and you are faithful now. See, the God who is faithful to hear the worship of his prayer and prayers of his people then is the same God who is faithful to hear the worship and prayers of his people now. And in the middle of the dark night, we can triumphantly sing and expectantly pray, believing that God is going to work. Again, not in some entitled way. I said it before, expectant prayer is not the same as entitled prayer. You got to get that straight. We are not praying, God, I deserve or demand that you work in my life the same way that you worked in Paul and Silas's life. We are not presuming that we know God's will or that our prayer forces God's hand to give us exactly what we are asking. That's expectant prayer. I mean, sorry, that's not expectant prayer. That's entitled prayer. But, we are singing and praying with the full knowledge that our God is a powerful God. Our God is a God who loves when his people worship and responds when they pray. And he may not work the same way every time, but he will work powerfully every time. He might not break you out of whatever trial you're going through. He might choose to leave you there and give you opportunities to make his glory known through, from that place. The miracle might be the perspective he gives you, the endurance he gives you. The miracle might honestly be the eternal life that he gives you on the other side of suffering and death. But no matter what, God will reveal his power when you worship him, and you can stake your life on that because that is who he is, and that is what he does. Worshipful prayer is, is one way that we can speak to our fear and preach to our doubt. Worshipful prayer says, God, I know who you are, and I might not be able to see everything that you're doing in this dark night that I'm going through, but I know who you've always been, and I know that's who you will always be. And when we pray like that, and God works in whatever powerful way he chooses, we aren't surprised by it. And we'll have a better understanding of what God is doing. Are your prayers fueling a big, powerful view of God? Are they responding to that God? Are they desperate for that God and expectant to see that God in whatever way he chooses? Paul and Silas knew that God, God's powerful rescue 
not ultimately about them. It was about the power of God being on display. It was about his gospel going to the lost. It wasn't about their escape from jail. It was about the jailer's escape from the prison of his sin. The jailer calls for the lights to illuminate the darkness, and he, he falls down at their feet, and they give him the light that's going to illuminate his spiritual darkness. Look at verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set, foot, set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Worshipful prayer realizes the priorities of God in the night. It realizes the presence of God, the power of God, and third, the priorities of God in the night. The jailer brings them out of the jail cell, and not only that, he must have brought them to his house to bind up their wounds and clean them up. And so they go from being inmates to honored guests in a matter of minutes. And he asks this ever-important question. He asks, what must I do to be saved? That, that question is the spiritual equivalent of asking for the light so that he can see his way around the darkened jail cell. And the question that he asks is the question that every single person must ask. What must I do to be saved? And if you do not know Jesus today, I want you to understand that you are not only in a dark situation, you are not only having rough times, you are blinded by sin. You are in spiritual darkness that you can never understand on your own. You are just like that jailer at midnight in, a, in, a, in the dusty rubble of a darkened prison, unable to see the situation around you clearly. The Bible says that, that everyone who is not United to Christ by faith, everyone who's not put their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ is dead in their sin and they are destined for far worse than a bad day or some hard times. We, we all, every single person sitting in this room has sinned against an infinitely holy God. We don't measure ourselves to other people, we measure ourselves against God. And our sins separate us from him for eternity because he is perfect. That, that's what hell is all about. Eternal separation from the presence of God and any one of his mercies. And the only way that any of us can be saved is for the light of Jesus Christ to shine through and to make sense of our darkness. Paul and Silas bring the spiritual light of the gospel to the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they apparently went on to explain that in more detail in verse 32, but, but their summary statement is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You, you can't save yourself from your sin and darkness. But God can save you. 
He already did the work to save you. And, and you're hearing right now as I speak the message of salvation in this moment. This is what you need. You don't need anything else more than you need this message right now. God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that you could not live. And Jesus entered into the rubble of our broken down lives and our dark worlds in order to rescue us from our sin. Even though Jesus was perfect, he experienced God's full judgment for sin on your behalf. And in a moment, he experienced the agony of separation from God that he never deserved. But we do. Jesus died, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead to break us free from the chains of sin and death and so that we could have light and life in him. And God will save you if you put your trust in him. What Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acknowledge that he is the only Savior. Acknowledge that he is the only Lord and allow that truth to take over your life. This is more than just believing about Jesus. It's believing in Jesus. Like, it, 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 like he is the only Lord. Like he is the only Savior. This isn't like the believing in the tooth fairy or believing in the Easter bunny. This is believing that Jesus is truly the Savior and Lord. And I would urge you to turn from your sin and trust Jesus today if you have never done that before. And if you have, rejoice once again in worship and praise to the God who is faithful to save you. That's what the jailer did. They preached the word of the Lord to his whole household. He and his whole household believed, and they were baptized that night. We see it again in the book of Acts. Baptism is the first step of obedience after someone becomes a follower of Jesus. This is prescriptive because it is the consistent pattern. And if you've never been baptized as a believer, we can, we can fill up the tank. We can do it anytime. I've been kind of keeping it on loan, not telling Mission Church. Just talk to me. That dark night in a jail cell broke into the bright daylight as a whole household saw the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They believed and they were baptized. The jailer went from a matter, I'm sorry, the jailer went from trembling to rejoicing in a matter of a few hours. All because Paul and Silas had their hearts set on God and his priorities in worshipful prayer. They knew the holiness of God. They were looking for his kingdom come, his will be done. That's where their eyes were set. I want you to understand, Paul and Silas could have escaped back in the jail cell. But they knew that God had more for them here. They could have just shared the gospel with the jailer right there on the spot and then gotten out of town. But instead, they go to his house and share the gospel with as many as will believe. Why? Because their hearts were set on the priorities of God through worshipful prayer. God does not answer our prayer just so that we can get out of hard situations. God answers our prayer so that we and others can come to know him more. 
Clearly, Paul and Silas were, were more concerned about God's glory on display through the gospel than their escape from the prison cell. That their prayer wasn't about their deliverance. It was about God's worship. They, they prioritized God's glory and others seeing that through their worship. Not only that, they prioritized the future security of this young church plant in Philippi. Uh, let's finish out the story from verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So the Romans realize that, that Paul and Silas aren't your average prisoners. Uh, there's something supernatural about these guys. And, and, and I think the Romans just wanted to get them out of their hair. Like, just, just go, just go. This is, a, this is an attempt to skirt the whole thing under the rug. And, and Paul and Silas could have said, whew, dodge that bullet. Let's get our cloaks and get out of town. And so why didn't they? Why did they make a, a big fuss about being Roman citizens? And listen, why did they do it now and not before they were beaten and thrown in jail? You ever ask that question? Did they just remember that they were Roman citizens when they were in jail? I don't, I don't think that was the problem. Was it, was it revenge at this point? Did they just want to like kind of stick it to the man and fight for their rights and I don't believe that was their motivation here. I don't believe that's any motivation that we ever see in the Scriptures. See, the effect of the Romans simply releasing Paul and Silas would be that the Romans would save face and the church would bear the brunt of what happened in the marketplace the day before. And they'd probably even be blamed for the earthquake that night. Further, the Jews would continue to be emboldened and, and more persecution would come upon the church. And so the future witness and security of the church would benefit if the Romans had to fall on their own sword for beating innocent men, especially Roman citizens. See, the Romans couldn't care less if they beat non-Roman citizens. To be human was to be Roman, and anything less than Roman was not human. But, but to beat a Roman citizen... That could get them in real trouble with even Caesar himself. And so Paul and Silas stand up for their rights. But I want you to understand that Paul and Silas only fought for their rights when it was advantageous to the gospel and to the witness of the church. We need to learn that as believers, especially as we enter into a much harder society for the church to live in. And this was one of those moments at the same time, this is kind of a gutsy request. It could have brought Paul and Silas more trouble. They're like a dog who's nipping at the hand who's letting them out of the cage. Fine, just stay in the cage then. 
So where did they get their confidence to persevere in the face of potential harm? And I believe it was the direct result of their praying the night before. And God answering that request. See, they knew God's protection. They knew God's priorities to use this event to save people, to advance the gospel. They knew that it would embolden the church if they stood up to the Roman authorities in this situation. It would give this new, fragile church plant a more solid root system if they stood up against the injustice they had experienced. And they knew God would protect them no matter what. Because he had answered their prayer the night before. Worshipful prayer recognizes the priorities of God in the night. Have you ever been going through something and you, you're just like, God, I don't see what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing here. I don't know why you're choosing to work in this way. It's not wrong to ask why. The, the Psalms do that all the time. But whenever the Psalms ask why, whenever the Scriptures ask why, they also acknowledge that God has reasons that are bigger than us. He has thoughts that are higher than ours. He has power that is greater than ours. And he knows how to work all things out for his glory and the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's why we seek him in prayer. To get our hearts on the sheet music of what he is doing. To get our hearts singing his song. So that it's the song that, that wells up from within the living soul. And so often, we can be short-sighted in our praying. Can't we? Like, ever find yourself short-sighted in your praying? We ask God to work so that we're going to have an easier life. We ask God to deliver us simply so that we don't have to be in trial anymore. But any time that God works powerfully in our lives, he wants to use our deliverance for the sake of delivering others as well. For the sake of creating a people for himself. For the sake of increasing fame, the fame of his name and faith in his power. For the sake of his worship. And worship-based prayer is how we realize that. As you pray, seek the priorities of God by seeking his worship first. And I want to leave you with this question. Are your prayers seeking your own escape from present suffering or somebody else's escape from present suffering? Or are they preparing you and others to worship God? Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.